Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm the youth pastor here. Pastor Brian is out of town this weekend, so you're stuck with me. Listen, when I was 20 years old, I was going through paramedic school. As part of the program, we did rotations through each department of the hospital. And so I did a a rotation through the emergency room and through the ICU and surgery. But the one rotation I kept procrastinating on going to was labor and delivery. Finally, the day came. I couldn't put it off any longer. So I enter into the room with the doctor. And part of this program is I'm supposed to assist the doctor in delivery of a baby. So I enter with the doctor. Mom starts to push. Dad's doing an amazing job coaching mom. The doctor's doing whatever the doctor does. And in that moment, all the medical training, all of the knowledge I had was totally gone. I just stood there. My jaw dropped open, overwhelmed. Mom quickly delivers the baby. Dad shouts with joy, and mom looks up at me, and she goes, is that guy okay? (laughs) Apparently, the blood had all drained out of my face, and she was concerned I was going to pass out. As a 20-year-old kid, I just didn't know how to process through watching the miracle of life. Psalm 139, 13 and 14, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So listen, a couple months back, Pastor Brian spoke on worldview. In his sermon, he had several different pair of glasses that he held up to use as an illustration that we look at the world through our worldview. One pastor, when getting ready to tackle the topic of sanctity of life, prayed a prayer, saying, God, I ask for your help, Lord, speaking in such a way that Jesus does not become a politician, but in this moment, the Savior We want to lift him up. He's not a Democrat, and he's not a Republican. He never will be. He's the Savior of the world, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So here's what I ask us to do today. I ask us to take off our blue lens worldview glasses or our red lens worldview glasses and instead put on our biblical worldview glasses. It's only when we look at this topic of sanctity of life with a biblical worldview that we see that the value of human life is a moral issue. Jeremiah 1.5 records God speaking to Jeremiah. He tells him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. This is God's word about the womb. Individuals can have their opinions, but God tells us he was in the womb as he formed us. Even in the womb, God sees us as a person and we hold value. So how do we work through this topic today? How do we work through this topic described by John 1.14 being full of grace and truth? Because we can't discuss the value of human life without discussing the cultural position on abortion. So listen, hear my heart today. Please, hear my heart today. I am not here to make someone's hurt cut deeper. I'm not standing here to condemn someone. I am not standing here to cast judgment. Instead, 
I am standing here to tell you that we have a holy God that pursues us for holiness. We have a holy God that offers forgiveness, a holy God that offers comfort and peace, a holy God that loves us. So the tough part of this topic is that it hits close to home for almost everyone in this room. We have emotional ties to this topic. Maybe you ended the life through an abortion. Or maybe you supported someone who did. Or maybe you didn't speak up for someone when they were wrestling through this decision. Or maybe you have a friend or family member. But more than likely, everyone in this room knows someone who's had an abortion and you're just unaware of it. You see, this is their secret sin. They feel that they, they can't tell anyone, that they, no one else would understand or maybe even love them if they divulged it. A LifeWay study wrecked me pretty hard. In this study, it said 7 in 10, 70% of women that have had abortions are professing Christians. Further, these weren't just nominal Christians, but these were women that were invested in their home church. 36% attended church monthly, 26% attended church weekly. But you see, this study continues. You see, this was where we as the church are missing the mark. The professing Christian women that have had abortions more than half say that they haven't told anyone from their church. And this study quotes because women likely haven't told people at their church because most don't see the church or the people there as safe. And they feel as if they may not be loved. I pray that Edgewood isn't seen this way. Instead, I pray that Edgewood is seen more similar to the Acts 2 church. In Acts 2, we see that they, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and their belongings and distributed those as anyone had needs. And day by day, attending the temple together breaking bread in their homes. They received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. We see that the Acts 2 church was devoted to Scripture. They were devoted to living in community with each other. They were devoted to praying with each other. In verse 45, we see they were sacrificing to care for each other. The relationship that these believers had was not superficial. They were living intimately with each other They knew each other. They cared for each other, and they pointed each other back to Jesus. So instead of being a church, like described in this study, where hurts aren't discussed, instead at Edgewood, we've had women stand on this platform. They've been vulnerable, and they've shared their life hurts, and we loved them. We loved them through that. So let us continue to be known as a church where people can bring their hurts and that we'll walk through life together. We'll study scripture together. We'll pray together and we're gonna point each other back to Jesus. In the same LifeWay study, these women's attitudes about pastors mirror much of their attitude about the church. 43% of women who've had abortions say that they don't feel that it's safe to talk with their pastor about it. Here's the one that really got me. Half, 49% of these women say that pastor's teachings on forgiveness, 
doesn't seem to apply to terminated pregnancies. So please hear me if this is you today. If you feel as if the pastor's teachings on forgiveness does not apply to past terminated pregnancies, let it be heard from this platform. You are loved. There is forgiveness, and you are not alone. Psalm 86.5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love for all who call upon you. See, as we talk about the value of human life, regardless of where you are today, regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you've been and what sins you've committed, you, you are valued by the God of the universe. And so I just imagine, I imagine if God were here today, what he would say, telling you, listen, I created you. From the dust of the earth, I formed you. And then I did something for you that I didn't do for anything else in creation because I breathed my breath into you. I created you in, in my image. Listen, I imagine God here today telling you, at the moment of creation, I knew you. At the moment of creation, I knew you. I knew the count of every hair on your head. I wove you together. I gave you your personality. I gave you your gifts and your abilities. At the moment of creation, I knew you. I knew the amazing things that you would accomplish. And I also knew the sins you would commit. Listen, nothing you've ever done has caught me off guard or surprised me because I know you. You see, I think we sit here and we know the condition of our hearts. We know like the deep crevices of the sinfulness of our hearts, our desires. And from that, we say, man, there's, there's no way that God could love me. There's, there's no way that God could forgive me. There's no way that God could be for me. And yet, and yet, Zephaniah 317 says, the Lord, our God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Listen, God, knowing all of this about you in Genesis, when he looked at all of creation, he says, it's very good. God wasn't just content, but he was pleased with knowing you. Your life has value to the God that holds it all together. Your value to God isn't based, though, on your actions. Your value to God is based on the position of you being created in his image. Can I say something really hard, though? As loving as what I can. Because just as you and I are made in the image of God and hold immense value to God, so do the more than 630,000 babies whose lives were intentionally ended in 2020. Their lives have value. They were also made in the image of God. So listen, as a brand new paramedic, I quickly realized that the one call that every paramedic was terrified about getting was a woman in labor. 
Well, sure enough, one of my first shifts on the fire department, the tones go off. We get dispatched for a medical call. The dispatcher gets on the, on the radio and tells us it's for a woman in labor. As we arrive at the home, the husband meets us at the street, and he points over to the car in the driveway. There's a woman laying across the hood of the car. The husband says, listen, we were going to drive to the hospital, but as we were walking to the car, her water broke, and so we called 911. So I rush over to the car, and literally, as I step up to, the, to this woman on the, on the hood of the car, the baby shoots out. I literally dive across the hood to catch this baby from landing on the hood of the car. The baby instantly begins to cry, which I know is a fantastic sign. I clamped and I cut the cord, and then I held this newborn fragile baby, and I was terrified. So I did what every highly trained, seasoned paramedic would do. I handed him to my partner. His responsibility now, not mine. Listen, this baby's life just seemed too valuable to be entrusted to me. Both mom and baby are perfectly healthy. Listen, there's many reasons to celebrate what's going on in the pro-life movement right now, but another article is calling Gen Z, our current 11 to 26-year-olds, the pro-choice generation. 46% of Gen Z women believing that abortion should be legal in all cases. 24% of Gen Z men agree. Listen, this is the age of our current students in our student ministry. These are the pressures that they're under to conform to. A couple months ago, our high school student ministry growth group joined with Pastor Ed's Second Winders growth group. It was an amazing time. Bridging the generations in our church is something that we love to do. So we have high school students scattered at tables with Pastor Ed's Second Winders growth group. We had an amazing conversation about the difference in culture in which they grew up in versus what our students are growing up in. And so we encouraged each other. It was a great time. I asked our students, though, I was like, what's one thing you wish older generations knew about your generation? And I love the answer they gave. They said, listen, the junk you hear about Gen Z doesn't represent every student. That doesn't represent us. So when you hear the stories or the statistics about upcoming generations, No, there's also Gen Z students that are chasing after Jesus with everything they have. We also found some some common ground with the second winders that the good old days weren't necessarily as great as what we'd like to remember. I believe we have a false sense of fear of the future, but equally a false sense that the further back in time we go, the simpler and better life was. And I get this to a point, but let's be honest. When we discuss the value of human life in history, there was some messed up points. We just got done celebrating Christmas, right, with the birth of Jesus. But in the midst of the celebration, we tend to stop short of one of the darker points in human history. So let's continue the story. Matthew 2 tells us the wise men, they find Jesus. They bring their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But you see, Herod had something more sinister planned. He was worried about this new king, 
that was born and the prophecy that came behind it and Herod in an attempt to protect his throne, Matthew 2.16, sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or under. Another example of the false sense of the good old days in terms of value of human life, we see the Romans. You see, they saw nothing morally wrong with abandoning newborns in dung heaps or in the garbage dumps of the cities if they didn't want them or they didn't think they would be beneficial to them. In Exodus, we see Pharaoh was concerned that the number of Israelites was becoming too powerful in number. Exodus one twenty two. then Pharaoh commanded that all his people throw into the Nile every Hebrew boy that was born. So look, the good old days and wishing we were back there, the good old days weren't so great. You see, the problem is, is in all of these circumstances, is that culturally, they have taken God out of the womb. Now, when I say they've taken God out of the womb, I don't mean physically taken him out of the womb. But they, what I do mean, instead, culturally, they don't view God as the creator. They don't view God as the one weaving this baby together. They didn't view this baby as having worth because it was made in the image of God. If you take God out of the womb, the only value that is placed on human life is the selfish desire of what can this baby do for me? See, the Christian idea that each individual person has worth because they're created by God was foreign to the lies of these pagan societies. Here, it was the state or the tribe or the king was the one who placed worth on that baby. And it was based on what the baby would eventually be able to do for them. So in essence, today, you have value. You have value because you're made in the image of God, but the world tells us you only have value if you can do something for me. Jeremiah chapter 1 shows us that we can't rightfully take God out of the womb. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, uh, Lord, God, behold, I did not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Listen, at this moment, Jeremiah is being called out as a prophet. He's being called to speak on behalf of God. And God revealed a few things to Jeremiah. One of them was God told Jeremiah what his purpose was. God declared, listen, this is no mistake. This is no plan B. Listen, although it seemed like a surprise to Jeremiah that he was being set apart as a prophet, this was no surprise to God. God declared that he was with Jeremiah in the womb. That was God who formed Jeremiah. The word formed is this Hebrew word that describes the creative work of a potter as he molds a she uh, and shapes a piece of clay. It means, I love this, it means to squeeze into a predetermined shape. It's also the word found in Genesis 2.7. 
where we read the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So just as God purposefully formed Adam from the dust of the earth, so too God still does his creative work. Now it's in the womb. Listen, if God formed Jeremiah, then God created Jeremiah exactly as he is for the exact task that God's calling him to. God told Jeremiah that he knew him even before he was in the womb. The original intent of this word isn't this just like, oh, that's Jeremiah, but it's a knowing of Jeremiah. It was intimate and conveyed a close personal relationship. Not only was God in the womb weaving Jeremiah together, but God created him with intention, with purpose, because he knew him. Now, as the youth pastor, this is where I get to brag a little. Because Jeremiah's all like, sorry, God, you got the wrong guy. I'm just a youth. We see again that God loves to use teenagers. It's estimated that Jeremiah was maybe 20 years old when God put this call on his life. One thing I love about student ministry is the crazy things that students are willing to do when God grabs a hold of their hearts. Two weeks ago, in youth group, our student band was leading music, and I just stopped for a moment, and I looked around. There was over 70 students there worshiping God through song. These individual students, God wove them together. God created them for a purpose. I wonder what the calling is, is that, uh, that God placed on their lives. How will God boldly use our students individually and collectively for his glory? But you see, Jeremiah does what so many students have done before. Jeremiah goes on to say, but I don't know how to speak. I'm just a youth. Jeremiah's not saying he's incapable of speaking, but he's like, listen, God, I'm not refined. I'm not poetic. I'm not eloquent in how I speak. God, maybe you should get someone who's got more experience in public speaking. Maybe you should find anyone else. Yet God's not convinced. Why? Because God was in the womb with Jeremiah. God's the one that created Jeremiah, equipped Jeremiah, knows Jeremiah. What's the quote that's on coffee cups? If you want to see God laugh, tell him your plans. Listen, this is God laughing at Jeremiah. God created him for this moment. I love this. God doesn't even try to convince him or give him a pep talk because God knows Jeremiah. God knows his heart to please the Lord. God knows his desire to be holy. God simply tells Jeremiah, for to whom all I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Listen, there's two parts going, there, there's two things going on here. Number one, Jeremiah isn't going on his own authority. Jeremiah isn't speaking his own words, but he's going on God's authority, speaking the words that God tells him to speak. So when we read this section of scripture, the emphasis needs to be placed more on the I. For to whom all I send you, shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak because it's all about God. It's always been about God. It will always be about God. God's sending on his authority. Now the second part, I love this. God's like, listen, Jeremiah, we both know you're going to be obedient. We both know your love for the Lord. We both know that your answer is already yes to whatever I call you to. 
Incidentally, this is not the direction our culture is turning. Culture has taken God out of the womb. I was listening to an interview of a student at a college who was having a debate with a speaker on abortion. As the speaker was challenging her on the preborn being a human life, it has a heartbeat and fingers, feels pain, and knows its mother's voice, this college woman admitted it was a human life. But she didn't care because it was an inconvenience for her. You see, she didn't want a baby yet. See, the value she was placing on this baby is that it was just a human As a paramedic student standing in that labor and delivery room, my jaw dropped open in the awe of that little miracle. This woman had refused to see the miracle of God weaving this child together in the womb. She refused to see the miracle of this child holding immense value simply because God says so. She refused to see that this baby held worth not for what the baby could do for the mother, but what God could do through the baby. When we take God out of the womb, we we lose the sanctity of life. Taking God out of the womb is exactly what an article from Cosmopolitan magazine published just in December. Boasting an audience of over 50 million readers. Please let me be upfront. I don't read this magazine, (laughs) nor do I recommend this magazine. The article titled, So How Does a Satanic Abortion Ceremony even work. This article, which I found to be heartbreaking and vulgar, takes women through a step-by-step process of the religious ritual of abortion. A pro-life advocacy group responded to this article stating, this is our cue to take our children back to church, to stop focusing on self-empowerment and to stop allowing culture to raise our children. Will you allow me to step on a soapbox for just a second? This pro-life group said, this is your cue to take your children back to church. Listen, I love what I get to do in the position of the youth pastor. I love where God has me. I love that I get to walk through life with your students and to speak truth over your students. But this is not your cue to take your children back to church. This is your cue to raise your children up in the way of the Lord. Part of that is assuring your kids are are gathering weekly to worship and grow deeper in their relationship with God. It's the calling on your life as their parents to show them Jesus. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. And these words that I command to you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And talk of them while you sit in your house, while you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Liesl Parks oversees the nursery. Becca Rollins oversees our preschool. Ms. Sheila with our kids' ministry. Myself with student ministry. We love that we get to teach your, your kids, that we get to teach your students about Jesus. But we're also here because we want to equip you. We want to partner with you to raise your kids up in the way of the Lord. Now, as I was prepping this sermon, I'll be honest, it got really heavy. 
I got a little overwhelmed um, really with the darkness of it all. Culturally, how did we get to the point that this is acceptable? How did we get to the point that a mainline magazine is publishing an article on satanic abortion ceremonies and barely an eye is blinked in opposition? And yet, I was reminded that we are sinful, broken, rebellious people in a sinful, broken world. I mean, why would we expect sinful people to do anything but sin? Our high school students are spending the year studying through the book of Romans. Just a few weeks ago, I got to teach on Romans chapter 6. And Paul shares the amazing news of the gospel. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The unconverted heart can do nothing but sin. They're bound to sin, slaves to sin. But the genuinely converted, born-again believer, we're no longer slaves of sin, but instead we're committed to chase after Jesus. We're committed to the standard of teaching that Jesus gave. The thing is, as believers, we should look different than the rest of the world. We're no longer bound by the shackles of sin. We have found freedom in Christ. So listen, with all of this said, what should the church's response be? Number one, we need to be praying for God to draw unconverted hearts to himself. We need to be praying for God to work in the hearts of non-believers. We need to be praying for a world to see the depth of their depravity and their desperate need for a savior. We can't be mad at people who are slaves to sin for sinning. Although we have God's moral law written on our hearts, slaves to sin can do nothing but sin. Specifically, how can we be mad at people who sin if you and I, being free from the chains of sin, are sharing the gospel with them? They need to know the hope that we have in Jesus, the freedom that we found in him. Number two, if we as the church rightfully take the stance that we are for the lives of the preborn, because they have value, because they're made in the image of God, that we must say the same about someone who's not a Christian yet. That they have value because they're made in the image of God, so we need to be for them. And what about the person who holds a different religious belief than you? They have value. They're made in the image of God. Are you for them Or what about the politician that sits on the other side of the room as you? They're made in the image of God. They have worth. Are you for them? I mean, are you actually praying for them, looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them? And I don't mean yelling at the TV, telling them that y'all need Jesus. Are you actually for them? An article from the Christian Post challenges us on the, on the church's response. Unlike us, the early Christians didn't have the opportunity to write their legislators, blow up Twitter and Facebook. Thankfully, we do. But more importantly, the first Christians showed the cruel, inhumane world around them a picture of selfless, sacrificial love. 
And they did this day after day as they went to wherever they could find these discarded babies, and they took them into their homes, and they loved them. The result was that over time, a ruthless society noticed the Christians quietly living out their faith, an authentic faith, and human life slowly began to gain value. Listen, changing the culture started with Christians doing what Christians do. And Edgewood is full of families that are fostering and adopting and serving with safe families, grandparents that are raising their grandkids, aunts and uncles that are stepping in to fill a gap, people serving with pregnancy resources. Edgewood is full of Christians doing what Christians do. But I found myself a couple years ago surrounded only by people that looked like me, that thought like me, that held the same values as me. And we would sit in our little circles and we would discuss how messed up the world was. But what was I actually doing? And so I began to be intentional about making friends that looked or thought differently than myself. If changing the culture starts with Christians doing what Christians do, then I need to be in a place where I can point people that don't know Jesus back to Jesus. Number three, I believe in our culture anyway, Christians are definitely known for what we are against. But what if we were known for what we are for? What if when people looked at our lives, they saw a changed life? They saw a life that looked so different from the rest of the world. What if they looked at your life and saw, like in the early Roman Empire, that the church not only saw value, but was willing to sacrifice for what they knew was morally right? So as Christians, what should we look like? What is it that we are for Romans 12 gives us a huge list, and just a few of them is that we should have a genuine love, a hatred for evil, a steadfast in what's good. We should be joyful in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, generous, blessing our enemies, harmonious, associating with the lowly, peaceful, and that list continues. What if we were known for what the church was for? I mean, when somebody walks into Edgewood, do you think this is how they would describe us? I think in a lot of ways, the answer is yes. But I just wonder if we could be better. Number four, personal holiness. In Kevin D. Young's book, The Whole in Our Holiness, he makes a statement about how much the church actually looks like the world. He says, we don't have the eyes to see how much the world has squeezed us into its mold. He goes further to say, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, I believe what would surprise them the most is how at home Christians are with certain sins. You see, they don't shock us anymore. They don't upset us. They don't offend our conscience. Since God was in the womb with us, God's the one that created us. God's the one who equipped us. He knows us. He's the one that called us. He's the one that saved us. The same God also calls us to be holy. So do our lives look set apart? Do we look like more like Jesus or do we look more like the world? As believers, our lives hold value for who God calls us. 
And God calls us many things. He calls us a new creation, a child of God, adopted, justified, redeemed, an heir, chosen, righteous. And he calls us to be holy as he is holy. See, if our redeemed lives have value, then we need to be passionately chasing after the God who calls us. Let me be quick to say, though, I am not talking about a works-based salvation But what I'm talking about is that as we fall deeper in love with the gospel, it drives us further to want to please God. His loving kindness is what brings us to repentance. We know our sin grieves God, and so we choose to flee from it. So what should our response to the God of Jeremiah, the God that knew us before the womb, that was with us as he wove us together in the womb, that created us, equipped us, gave us a purpose, knows us, called us to obedience, what should be our personal response? Number one, pray for eternities to be changed. Listen, every life has value, both the born and the preborn. Then we need to be praying for eternities to be changed. Number two, invest in people. We can see God place Jeremiah in a time and a place to speak what God had told him to say to a people group. And similarly, God has placed each of us on a mission field as well, surrounded by hurting lost people that need the gospel. So make friends that don't look or, say, or, don't look or have the same values that you may have. Try to find ways to bridge gaps. Try to earn the right to share the gospel. Number three, live a life where the world knows what you're for. Live a life where the world sees the joy of your salvation, the hope you have in a risen God, the promise of a future home. Show the world that forgiveness is available for everyone who puts their faith and trust in him. Number four, the value of a redeemed life deserves us pursuing holiness. Listen, if you are a believer today, your life was ransomed and paid for by the greatest price. Because of this, you're no longer bound to sin. You're no longer a slave, but now you're free. Sin has no dominion over you. It can't, it won't. A new king sits on the throne. You serve a different master. You have a different lord. Listen, it has been a decade, or it's been decades, plural, since I was going through paramedic school working that rotation in labor and delivery, but I still stand in the same amazement at the miracle of human life. My wife and I, we have friends that are currently pregnant with twins. I'm now publicly claiming the title of the fun uncle. The mom was commenting about how tired she was She's normally just nonstop, and she's like, I'm just exhausted. And I didn't know how to break the news to her that she was probably going to be exhausted for the next 18 years. (laughs) But I did tell her to give herself some grace and to rest that she's currently baking a couple miracles inside of her. The husband also shared that he's a little overwhelmed with the idea of twins, but is holding on to the fact that he knows God is sovereign, he knows God is in control, and if God's given them these babies, that God will also equip them as parents. God's weaving right now. God's weaving these two little babies together in her womb. God is right now equipping these two little babies. 
Right now, God is giving them their personalities and their abilities. God already has placed a purpose on their two little lives. Listen, mom and dad have already committed these babies back to the Lord with the prayer that God will be glorified through their two little lives. So listen, church, let's be intentional. Listen, let's be a church that will walk through life with this family and other families like them. Let's be a church that will pray for these two little babies to one day place their faith and trust in Jesus. Let's be a church that will invest in these babies and show them the joy of our salvation. Let's be a church that will teach and encourage them to pursue holiness. Let's be a church that sees value in their lives even while they're still in the womb. Amen? Father, we love you, God. God, and we thank you for today. God, I thank you for, uh, I thank you for your word. God, that as studying your word, we get to know you more intimately. God, and from that, we have found out the immense value that we hold to you. God, it's not about what we can do, but what you've already accomplished God, I want to pray for these two babies now, God, that you draw them to yourself. God, that you use this church to speak truth over them, that this is a church that will walk through life with this family. God, ultimately, we just we see that you gave Jeremiah a calling on his life to take the gospel outside of where he was at. And so, God, use us as a church as you take us outside these four walls on a mission field where people are hurting and lost and are in desperate need of the gospel. Help us to show them to live lives that are authentic and show them the joy of our salvation. Father, we love you. We praise you. Be glorified. Amen.